The following content is explicit. It's Monday, March 12th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And I'm not here today. I'm in Florida, where I guess they don't have microphones. Maybe I'm getting a day off. I'll come back tanned and well-rested, which is always the, the pair, isn't it? But uh, I assume that in the news will still be this story of, of the attack, the poisoning, the, the nerve agent, apparently, attack in Great Britain on this former Russian spy, uh, Sergei Skripal. And it, what I notice about it, well, a couple things. One is that the president, our president, doesn't seem so up in arms about this. Probably should be. Doesn't shock me that he's not. It's shocking that it's not shocking. You, you understand. But... The newscasters will be giving details of this story and, you know, saying things like Sergei Skripal or or they'll talk about his daughter, Yulia, or his uh, deceased wife, Ludmila, and then they'll talk about Alexander Litvinenko. They'll quote Litvinenko, who is the last spy to be killed under mysterious, not so mysterious, the Russians killed him, circumstances in the UK, and they'll be quoting his widow, Marina Litvinenko, and they'll be saying it just like I'm saying it, or probably better, like really, really Russian saying it. Now, what I find fascinating about this is that the newscasters presenting this story are literally saying Litvinenko, like I am saying it, do it leaning into the accent big time. And I have to say that I find it a little annoying, although it's passe to note how annoying it is when newscasters pronounce local words with the local flavor. I understand that we're no longer saying Bombay, we're saying Mumbai. I get that. But you know, the strict adherence and probably not correctly trying to ape the local accent, there's an argument for it, which is if someone says their name with local flair, try to honor them. There's an argument against it, which is that the country to the south of the United States is Mexico, not Mexico. Although it is Mexico to the Mexicans. And there's always the criticism that if you don't say the local name and the local parlance, you're not doing them an honor. But then again, if you do say or relish in an interesting name or an interesting proper name or proper word that is not a very familiar to American ears, what are you doing? You're othering those people, which is actually, I'm pronouncing it right, but I wish I weren't, this word othering. At last year's Oscars, Jimmy Kimmel talked with the actor Mahershala Ali, and this was before Jimmy Kimmel became really cool for standing up to Trump in the eyes of a lot of people, and there was a sentiment, oh my God, I can't believe that he's saying the name Mahershala over and over again. In fact, Mahershala Ali was on the Jimmy Kimmel show in advance of the Oscars, and they talked about his name, and they talked about that Mahershala is actually short for a longer name. That's my nickname. That's your nickname? Yeah, yeah. yeah. My my first name is 18 letters long. Mahershala Hashbaz. Oh, boy. Yeah. Mahershala Hashbaz. Mahershala Hashbaz. Wow. uh, So to me, it's just like relishing a, f- a word like Buttafuoco, Buttafuoco, Joey Buttafuoco, and how David Letterman used to say Buttafuoco. It's the same with Litvinenko. But of course, if we lean into too much Mahershala, we get accused of othering. It just, it's, it's, it's the one silver lining to this poisoning.
You get you see a poisoning and you got to find the silver lining. So I say on the show today, I will spiel. Well, I will give you some tape, not from the cutting room floor that that indicates that it wasn't up to snuff. This was totally up to snuff. There was so much stuff that was up to snuff. I didn't want to stuff it in the original interview with Steven Pinker. So what I did was I asked him about the state of academia or academia, if you want. Is it worse than ever before? According to leading Republicans and New York Times columnist David Brooks, it is. So I talked to Pinker about that. That'll be the spiel. But first, we will replay my conversation with Brian Fogel, director of the Oscar award-winning documentary Icarus. Give a listen to that. I talked to Brian Fogel last August about his documentary, Icarus. We gave it the gist bump, whereby a good documentary gets elevated to Oscar nominee. And I'm playing this interview now to memorialize the fact that it worked. It won the Oscar Best Documentary. It started out as a stunt. Fogel decided he would dope himself to try to push himself into the upper echelon of cycling. He's an athlete. He said, maybe if I take performance-enhancing drugs, I could be a great athlete. It turns out the scientist who helped him in this quest was Grigory Rodchenkov, the head of Russia's scam to help its Olympic athletes dope without detection. Rodchenkov is now a whistleblower. He's hiding in the U.S. And Fogel has an Oscar. I don't know if that's justice, but I know that this was the interview. Brian Fogel is here. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So the idea was you were way into cycling and you were saying to yourself, all right, what if I uh, pump myself up with some of these drugs that helps Armstrong and the others? So I was looking at Lance Armstrong and this guy to this day has passed 500 anti-doping controls clean. He's never been caught. The only way he was actually caught is his own teammates who did the same thing as him, ratted him out in exchange for their own immunity. Right. But what is wrong with this system that has been completely ineffective in catching him? Why are the dopers ahead of the doping police? That, and I'm going, wait, if Armstrong had been able to accomplish this, Mm -hmm. what does this mean on a global level? And what I ended up uncovering was a conspiracy so vast that it makes what Lance Armstrong did look like essentially a needle in a haystack and points to such a larger level of corruption within the sporting world and the Olympic organization. But your way in was this doctor, Grigory Radchenkov. I was almost a professional in running 1,500 meters and five kilometers in Moscow University. My mother always pushed me to swim, to ski, I realized that some people are using something. Last year he was nobody. Next year he has a muscles. And of course, I also started to use the best of the best. Stanazolol. And all injections were done by my mother. And of course, it was 50 milligrams. This simple thing. Wait, wait. Your mother injected you? Yes, of course. I graduated to Moscow University to the chemical department. I like doping control, I like sports, and since 1985, I worked in the top field of laboratories in the world. But did you choose him because he would uh, help you in your aim of doing this experiment on yourself? Or did you choose him because you thought that maybe he was the key to the door of the bigger question? Well, it, it, it was both. This was 
hey, I have a hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And the hypothesis in a sentence would be? The anti-doping system flat out did not work. Right. I start speaking to scientists after scientists after scientists, does the anti-doping system work? And every single one of them, even including the ones that are deeply involved in the system, are telling me no. That was what led me to Don Catlin, who uh, was retired but developed most of the anti-doping protocols in sport. And he was telling me that there were so many problems. And I say to Don, hey, would you help me prove this hypothesis? And he goes, look, I'd love to, but I'm just concerned about my reputation. And he connects me to Dr. Gregory Rachenkov, who at the time is running the third largest WADA, World Anti-Doping uh, Laboratory in the world. He agrees to essentially help me dope myself. But the goal behind that is to show on camera how it is not only possible to evade positive detection, but also kind of the deeper level of corruption yeah. uh, within the anti-doping world. So Don Catlin says, I sympathize with what you're trying to prove, but I'm essentially the doping police. I'm not going to dope you. Dr. Rodchenkov says something different. Does that, that interesting to you? Does that raise either alarm bells or tell you something about him? When you look at just the the outside of it of whether or not Gregory should have been helping me. Mm -hmm. Well, the answer is no, because it is against all code work to advise an athlete, amateur or not, even though I'm an amateur athlete, what to do. And the fact that he agrees to do that is because in the back of his mind, he had a bigger story to tell. He had just come out of the Sochi Winter Games. He had been involved in a spectacular fraud, and he had had enough. And you had to back up here for 10 seconds. So in the U.S. or the U.K. or, or many countries, sport is privatized. You essentially have to get a private sponsor. It's privately funded. And even if you make it onto the Olympic team, America is not paying for you to right. compete. You are not an employee of the government. Right. Well, in Russia, all of sport, professional sport is under the ministry, meaning sport is a government operation. Right. In Russia, in China, an American athlete once told me that American Olympians are sent to the Olympics by Americans, citizens who band together, who fund their federations, who fund them. But in Russia or China or one of these other countries, they're sent there by Russia, by China. That model. is right. And yep. they are competing for their country. Yep. They are being supported by the country and they are being paid by the country to compete. And layer on to that, when you're hosting the Olympics, as Putin in Russia was in 2014, it is all about spending $50 billion, all about the glory of the country, so much of his own prestige, national prestige, wrapped up in pulling off a successful Olympics and Russian athletes doing well in those Olympics. That's right. The mandate was to win at all cost. Why? Because if you're going to spend $50 billion to host your own Winter Olympic Games, your athletes better win and you better win as a country. So give me the numbers on the extent of the cheating in Russia that we know of. Well, Professor Richard McLaren, with the help of Interpol, other police agencies, forensic scientists, examiners, determined that at least 1,000 Russian athletes across all sport were involved in this conspiracy to cheat the Olympics, but also cheat international competition. 
that the conspiracy went back to at least 2008. And what he determined was that this was a state-sponsored system and that Russia was helping these athletes evade positive detection through its laboratory system, and that essentially this has corrupted the last 40 years of Olympic history. Essentially, how many hundreds and thousands of American athletes, not to mention world athletes, have been cheated out of medals, assuming that those athletes were clean? Mm-hmm. Uh, right, because of Mar- Marion Jones, Tyson Gay, many American athletes themselves have doped. Right. Yeah. So the mechanics of this are fascinating. In the uh, Chinese games, the Chinese officials conspired with the athletes to make sure that the urine going in the vials was clean. These doped up athletes would come in and they'd pour clean urine in the vials and the vials would be tested. No problem. In Sochi, the dirty urine, the athlete's urine would go in the vials, but what Radchenkov and his minions figured out was a way to essentially steal the dirty urine crack open this supposedly foolproof, uncrackable vial and replace it with clean urine. My question is, why does it take a doping scientist to do this? It sounds more like a feat of engineering. Well, that's exactly right. So when you look at kind of like the the history of the cat and mouse game in the world of anti-doping, right? Most of it has been a science equation, meaning what Rachenkov was doing was developing tests to catch other athletes, while at the same time he's developing the the anti-venom to his test to allow Russian athletes to get away with taking substances while catching other athletes. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a science equation. But when you look at what they did in Sochi, this is just outright fraud. And so what Rachenkov's job went from is being a scientist to essentially being, as he says, their doggy bag, their their shit collector, that he was there to clean up the mess. And this was essentially Russia's solution to anti-doping, which was screw the science. If we can actually just manipulate the system itself and break into the bottles, we can just have all of our athletes dope and then we just swap out their urine. Yeah, and dope with the strongest stuff possible and dope up until the last minute. I mean, you always hear- Dope dope straight through the competition. Yeah, yeah, dope in between rounds. So one of the- I don't know if it's problems, but it does raise in my mind, why did he make such an ethical distinction between doping and maybe using a masking agent with the drugs so that you test the drugs and it wouldn't show up? That seems very similar to what actually went on, which is just, you know, pouring out the dirty urine and putting in clean urine. To him, there was a big difference. Why? Because it offended his sensibilities? First of all, it is impossible to condone Uh, what Dr. Rachenkov was a part of. But I think you can also understand that he was an employee of a government. A brutal and vicious government. And he said to the ministry, this system has reached its logical conclusion. And out of Sochi, he was promised that they were going to no longer swap the urine, that they were going to go back to kind of the old methodology of evading positive detection as to what they were doing, and they were no longer going to swap the urine. But out of Sochi, they kept swapping the urine. Yeah. I want to ask you about Dr. Rachenkov's motivations. 
the walls were closing in on him, yet it does seem through your documentary, here's, he's a guy with at least a great personality. He's, he seems to be a compelling figure. To what extent was doing the right thing or pangs of conscience driving him? And to what extent was just rationally figuring out that coming to you and blowing the whistle and now living in the United States was his only way to avoid, you know, maybe getting killed by the Russians? What was really driving him? In November 2015, this 335 page report comes out that WADA was investigating and the report is limited only to track and field. And it's such a bombshell. Gregory is forced to resign from the lab. The laboratory is shut down and the IAAF, International Track and Field Athletics, Sebastian Co. suspends Russia from all world competition. So this is now a crisis in Russia. And they have to respond. And their response is to deny all responsibility. But not only that, Putin gets on state television and says that if there has been any doping in Russia, it is the individuals that are responsible. And it is the individuals who will be held accountable and punishment will be absolute. And that was essentially Gregory's death sentence. Yeah. That was it right there. And Gregory is on a phone call to me, Skyping. He's now without a job. He has two KGB FSB agents living in his apartment. It's five days after this report. And Gregory is telling me, Brian, you have to help me. I need to escape. They're going to kill me. They are planning my suicide. And I need to escape. I, I buy him a plane ticket. He had a visa already to come to the U.S. And he's able to slip out. And as he comes to the United States, he brings this hard drive with him of all the documents, of all the evidence. Not only does he tell me the extent to which he has been involved, he also decides that he wants to become a whistleblower and that people need to know about this. And I think it was driving from multiple things. One, he knew that he was a dead man if he stayed in Russia. Two, after the Sochi Olympics, Vladimir Putin gives him the Medal of Friendship, basically the highest honor in Russia yeah. for his success of Sochi. Rex okay? Tillerson got it too. Right? Yeah. Putin's ratings are at like 95% approval rating and he goes and attacks Ukraine. He goes into, into Crimea yeah. and, and wages war in which thousands of people die. And in Gregory's mind, the only reason why he was able to do this was because of the success that he had had at Sochi and the national pride that was involved in that. And you have to remember, nobody knew about this. It mm -hmm. was like there were only a few people that truly had the knowledge. So even though the athlete hypothetically was providing his clean urine and taking substances, they didn't know they were breaking into the bottles. They didn't have, you know, it was. That's and, how you and, run an effective yeah, operation like this. You exactly. You have one, cells and you have cutouts and the one person doesn't know what the next is doing. But there are one or two people like your guy, Rochenkov, who and does here's, And yeah. here's Rochenkov and the other two people that had knowledge of this. Both die of heart attacks within two weeks of each other. One's 52, one's 59. The 52-year-old is essentially Gregory's best friend. He's an athlete. He's never had a health problem in his life. He's never been to the doctor. He's never had a heart problem. Nikita Kamaya, this guy who dies, had contacted David Walsh, 
probably the most respected journalist in sports, yeah. the Sunday Times writer. Yeah, and was all reached, over was all over the Lance Armstrong. Right. Story. And he reached Armstrong out to David yelled Walsh. Yelled at him a lot. Yeah. And he reached out to David Walsh and said, "Hey, I have a story for you." And two days later, he's dead. Yeah. Gregory finally said, "You know, I am the only man on planet Earth that can tell this story, and enough is enough." So, in evaluating what he's done. Certainly the information he provided is a great boon to public knowledge. Perhaps it'll lead to reforms. You suggest that reform might be nigh impossible. A very factual, detailed information, brave in a way, if desperate, but brave. But there's another argument here. Perhaps his misdeeds while he was in place were so severe that nothing he's done since can make up for them. It's not necessarily a question that you have to weigh in on, but I wonder if you've grappled with it. First of all, you can't condone what Gregory did and what he was involved in. But then he could have come to the United States and he could have kept his mouth shut. He could have likely gotten political asylum or worked out something. You know, there were all sorts of things that he could have done that likely would have allowed him to remain alive. Instead, this guy takes this extraordinary leap. Not only has he left his family, where he will never be able to go back to Russia again, and now he is living in protective custody where he no longer has his own freedom. He had 10 million things to lose and really not a lot to gain in doing this other than his own clearing of his conscience. I I can't see any other outcome for him other than to be respected in his bravery and his integrity to shine a light into this. Brian Fogel is the director. Icarus is the film. It is available now on Netflix. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. Hi, guess what? Slate needs a lawyer. Calling all lawyers. This is an announcement for any lawyer who happens to be listening. We didn't get in legal trouble. We want your mind. We're looking to hire a lawyer to write a new legal newsletter for Slate. Would you rather think and write and argue about the most interesting legal developments than actually practice law? Then you should apply. Well, you should also take into account you'll probably make less money doing this, but it'll be more fun. Find out more at slate.com slash legal writer. And now the spiel. I am going to do things a little bit differently today. It won't be me. What I've done is went out and gotten someone who I'm going to say might even be smarter than me, Steven Pinker. He was on a couple weeks ago. We talked about the main ideas of his books. He's the Harvard professor, the psychologist. He wrote a book called, he's written many books, but this last one was called Enlightenment Now. He's essentially arguing the world is experiencing unprecedented bounty and progress. There are a few counterexamples, acknowledged. But, you know, we got to talking about college campuses because he works on one, and I'm always reading about one or another in the news. And I put the question to Pinker, have things gotten really bad in the academy? You're there in terms of, you know, putting forth an idea that not everyone agrees with. They're bad. I mean, they they don't, as many right-wing critics say, undermine the credibility of everything coming out of a university. I mean, as institutions go, for all the follies on campus, it's still a better place to hash out debates than the, than you know the blogosphere or, yeah. or Congress. Uh, in terms oh, of there is a standard, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, and it is certainly not the case that, for example, that climate scientists are so infected by political correctness that they would would distort the data to, to right. uh, 
uh, underwrite a government takeover of the economy. I mean, that, that is that's you know, that's a paranoid. cartoon complaint. That's yes. a cartoon complaint. Yes. But I think there there is a problem that in many social issues there are certain hypotheses that are uh, just not discussable in polite company. That 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 uh, people. Pre- Promoting them get hauled before disciplinary committees, kind of a Stalin-esque investigations, get shouted down by angry mobs, sometimes uh, sometimes subject to uh, to violence. I don't think by no means is this the dominant means of of uh, uh, exchange in academia, but it is it is there, and I think it is a real threat. But you're there all the time. I've been reading about this for 12, 15 years. Uh, the the right like to point to examples of Oberlin, they're protesting sushi as appropriation, right? That <laughs> right. happened 12 years ago. Now I'm hearing, I don't know, I think I heard an interview where you said in the last five years, that complaint that was exaggerated has begun to hew more to reality. It has. And I think it is a, it's a trend that I would like to see university presidents and uh, deans push back against. And part of it is encouraged by this massively growing bureaucracy of student life, uh, where they're kind of not really responsible to anyone, but Mm -hmm. have their own internal culture that moves sideways from one campus to another, take bringing their culture with them. And it's not that anyone in charge could really defend a lot of these practices, but they uh, they operate autonomously. I, who are, I don't I'm not in what what student life are they administrators? Be- people who run a residence hall? Who are we talking uh, about? Yeah, there's a whole um, massive bureaucracy. They're usually called deans and associate deans. I mean, yeah. it's not they're not like the dean of the faculty of arts and science. Right. They're deans for student life and freshman life and campus life and dorm life and counseling and Title Nine and various federal men dates. And um, they have absolutely been growing. And one of the reasons for the increase in tuition is that uh, there's the, this new level of um, uh, in the University of Administrators. So it's, as with any institution, it's not so easy to affect a change in the culture. But I would like to see presidents and provosts and deans and, and faculty to push back and reaffirm the ideals that ought to animate a university. Are those those deans, the, the student life deans, are they not serving the, their constituents who are the students or are they more like a deep state? They are kind of like a deep state, except they're, they're, they're pretty recent. It's not as if they've been around for, for 50 years, but they have greatly increased since the 1990s. Okay, so I have a couple questions. I was debating my producer, Mary, on this. If you look at the history, as you like to look at, of student movements, the mass majority of times, as far as I know, the things they were agitating for seemed radical, and then we just imbibed them into the culture. Or are there counterexamples? I came across one before the United States was involved in World War II. Isolationism was very popular on campus because they knew correctly they'd be uh, drafted. But how often have students in America been totally wrong? Well, I'll give you one example close to home. The massive protests against the biologist E.O. Wilson in the 1970s and 80s when he wrote the book Sociobiology, mm-hmm. where he dared to challenge the blank slate view of human nature, namely that it doesn't exist, and argued that we are shaped by evolution. There may be differences between the, the sexes and sexuality. There may be emotions that we can best explain through evolution. And they there were 
there was deep platforming and there were chanting mobs and the students were wrong. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, we, we, there is such a thing as human I, nature. I was not aware, I've heard you mention that before, but I was not aware that there was widespread opposition. I mean, E.O. Wilson is seen as like a saint and revered figure among all sorts of academics across disciplines. That was not true in the 70s and 80s. And hmm. he had to kind of claw back his, his uh, reputation, partly by embracing themes like um, uh, environmental protection and species conservation that kind of gave him kind of politically correct causes together with his politically incorrect one. But no, he was was, uh, physically assaulted. He was shouted down. So now there is a popular idea about microaggressions. You wrote a whole book essentially arguing that we had (laughs) macroaggressions and now we're at microaggressions. Let's count that as progress. But what happens to the idea of microaggressions, which, by the way, taken individually, some I think are totally rational. Some probably should be counted as macroaggressions and some are ridiculous. All right. Does it become what does history show that that atomizes into nanoaggressions are the next things that we get all upset about or does it just dissipate does a fever break and we you know it's a, it's a great know. question and i i just can't prophesy i think there is there is reason for concern yeah maybe we'll, we'll have pico aggressions <laughs> <laughs> but uh as you note, there is a positive development in being concerned with harms that may have passed unnoticed a generation ago but a lot of the so-called microaggressions turn universities into laughingstocks Steven Pinker is the author of Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname, who ranks 27th in spit and polish, which is a 25th in spit and 29th in polish. Gist was also produced by Mary Wilson. She's ranked third in overall lip sync. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He ranks last tied for last in Iron Poor Blood. The gist, we rank 49th out of a possible 50 in pronouncing particularly, particularly, Thank you for listening. Litvinenko. 